code to New York City, trauma code to WBAI. I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist. And I am Dr. Cassandra Raphael, an adult and child psychiatrist. Welcome to Trauma Code. Together we will focus on healing of mind, body, and community from trauma. We'll discuss how wellness fits into the culture at large. Join us on Monday at 2 p.m. on WBAI. WBAI, this is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald in studio with my co-host. Dr. Cassandra Raphael, Happy New Year, Happy Monday to everybody. And for those who celebrated or just drank soup jumu, Happy Haitian Independence Day. That was yesterday, but I'm sure we got some leftovers uh, lingering around, still enjoying some soup jumu, of course. Um, that, that song was Paul Beaubourne, Voodoo Ceremony. Um, and dedication to the Haitian independence. So I, I mentioned that a, a little bit about the, the soup jumu. So that's our freedom soup, right? Uh, the story behind that soup is that when we, well, when Haitians were enslaved people, that was something that we were forbidden from eating. So after the first successful uh, enslaved people's revolution that resulted in the first black republic, we indulge in some soup jumu and we do so every year for the past 219 years of independence. So I want to start off today by giving a recommendation. There are plenty of, I guess, what, grown-up books about the Haitian can, Revolution. Can, can I just cut in for one second and yes. say that I would second uh, the recommendation for soup jumu if uh, <laughs> you're Haitian or Haitian adjacent. Probably some of the Haitian restaurants will do it around this time of year. But it's a very uh, hearty soup with a uh, like a gourd, like a pumpkin broth, and just all of the meats and noodles and, and root vegetables that you can get in there. It's an excellent winter soup. I look forward to it every year. And uh, our Tati Jo and Canarsi, who makes us a big pot of it. So thank you, Tati Jo, if you're listening. A huge pot. I went yesterday to go pick up the soup. That, that pot is at least... 36 inches or taller. <laughs> um, and you, you don't cook in a pot like that if you don't know what you're doing, right? Like you gotta, you gotta make sure that it's a, a good batch and people come all day and, and gather and, and get their soup and drink it together. And it's a, it's a very, um, neighborly, friendly, 
celebration of our independence. Um, and I think you'll see some restaurants will give it out for free, or some caterers will distribute it for free on January 1st. So it's it's a it's a big thing. And I, I see it more and more. I see it come up in the New York Times. Um, it seems to be a pretty big Brooklyn event. Um, so so that's that's our soup jumu. I was going to say that there are some books about Haitian independence that are obviously geared towards grown-ups like the Black Jacobins. Uh, but if you are wanting to educate a child on the history of Haiti, the first black republic, I would definitely recommend the book Freedom Soup by Tammy Charles. talks about the soup, of course. talks about the music. talks about the history, Toussaint Louverture, all of our greats, our great legends. Um, yeah, so that's my early recommendation, my early cultural recommendation for for this week. Excellent. And in a little bit, we're going to play one more song, which is uh, a specific kind of dedication to the Haitian uh, Independence Day. Uh, but what you can look forward to on today's show, this is Trauma Code on WBAI. Uh, and in addition to being the new year, the Haitian Independence Day, uh, we all just kind of survived a, a pretty uh, dramatic um, weather event, uh, particularly in Buffalo, New York, where... Right, in western New York, but yes, specifically in Buffalo. Where at least 30 people uh, died in in, in uh, Buffalo. So we have on uh, our uh, our Brooklyn School of Public Health, SUNY Downstate School of Public Health, kind of weather expert Daniel Elkey will be on after the break. Dr. Daniel Elkey, that's right. To talk about what, uh, you know, what happened in Buffalo, what we can learn from it, and how we can prevent... Uh, that kind of tragedy again. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Uh, should we? So we look forward to having Dr. Elke on momentarily. Yeah, let's do a, a short, uh, a short musical interlude. Uh, this song will be Haiti Chéri. Haiti Chéri by Jacques Sauvergeon, off of the Volume Three of the Haiti Troubadou uh, series. Um, beautiful sounds. Just take it in. It's, it speaks a lot about Haitian pride. It speaks a lot about you know even if things are difficult in our country, we walk with our heads high. That our heads held high. Uh, that we've contributed a lot to this world. We have a lot to be proud of, and we still have a beautiful country. And that one day. Um, things will look up. Things will look better. We can work together on that. We plan to work together on that. I personally, I'm putting it out. I'm, I'm putting it on the radio airways that I intend to make my way to Haiti this year. I hope that nothing stops me, but um, uh, I'm very optimistic about that. I'm very hopeful for that. So anyway, this is Jacques Sauvergeon, Haiti Chéri, from uh, volume three of the Haiti Touadou musical series. Tout 
Trauma Code on WBAI. I am Simon Fitzgerald in studio with my co-host. Dr. Cassandra Raphael. Hello and Happy New Year again. We were just getting on our uh, Haitian Independence Day, Happy New Year vibe. Uh, but we have on the line uh, one of Brooklyn, the uh, SUNY Downstate School of Public Health experts on uh, weather and the public health of weather, Dr. Daniel Elke. Uh, are you with us, Dr. Elke? I am indeed. It's an honor to be with you. A pleasure to have you, Dr. Elke. Welcome to the Trauma Code. And I appreciate you joining us. Um, and, and we spoke a little bit before the show. And uh, what I wanted to get some people on the air to talk about what happened recently, specifically in Buffalo, right? We had this large weather event across the country, but it was in western New York, specifically Buffalo, where the blizzard conditions uh, came on so fast, caught so many people uh, kind of off guard that we had numerous uh, casualties. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what uh, what happened in, in Buffalo? Absolutely. Um, so this was a a combination, uh, really, of of what we uh, know of as a bomb cyclone. And I know that sounds melodramatic, it's but that is name. actually the scientific name that's that's used. Um, and uh, a combination of the bomb cyclone, but also lake effect snow, which is something that happens fairly frequently, uh, but when combined, produced a, a particularly severe event. Now, this bomb cyclone came itself as a result of a destabilization of what is known as the polar vortex. So the polar vortex is, you know, at the top of the world. It's polar, right? Uh, it's a swirling area of cold, low pressure. And more and more frequently, partly likely as a result of climate change, we're seeing disruptions in that polar vortex. So when that happens, we see that cold air that's usually locked up over the polar regions move well far down into uh, areas of North America, really all the way down into Florida in this case, with a severity that you wouldn't normally see with kind of a garden variety storm, right? So that's part of what fueled the so-called bomb cyclone, which simply describes any event where you have a low pressure system that moves along and strengthens very, very rapidly. It bombs out. So this particular storm strengthened rapidly relatively close to Buffalo, uh, really in southern Canada was where it became uh, its strongest, and it brought in ferocious winds. These winds happened to travel over the warm 
relatively warm waters, uh, in this case of Lake Erie. Uh, and so you had a combination of the effects of this large-scale storm with that wind off the lake, uh, and that led to a sustained period of heavy wind-driven snow. Now, what's interesting is that, you know, Buffalo itself only, quote-unquote, only received about four feet or so of snow from this event. Uh, about, you know, I don't know, uh, maybe a few weeks before, maybe to a month before, there was an event that dumped about 80 inches of snow on Orchard Park. So even by the standards of this winter, this was not actually the biggest snowmaker. What made this deadly in the end was that wind-driven nature of the snow. So this uh, blew the snow sideways. It caused for near zero visibility for at least a 24-hour period. Um, now, we're used to, you know, in a place like Buffalo, they're used to seeing blizzard conditions, you know, it's wind-driven snow for maybe, you know, a few hours at a time. To see it for 24, over 24 hours um, is is nearly unprecedented, really. And that's what made this storm so severe. So it was impossible at the height of the storm, really, to properly clear roads in all areas of the city. Well, and um, and you, as you, a result... Uh, large areas were left uh, unplowed for long periods, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit. And you've just uh, dropped a lot of information on us, and regular listeners of the Trauma Code will remember that we had a uh, climate journalist on one of our early episodes, Darna Noor, uh, called Climate Anxiety, because it was kind of about my anxiety, confronting my anxiety about the changing climate. So I have to take that in. Um, one more thing to kind of, to kind of, yes. uh, one more burden of, of that, uh, climate change on us. And of course, in, in New York City, we felt that bomb cyclone as several days of sub-zero, or at least Celsius, so several days of freezing, uh, temperatures that you know burst pipes and and caused a lot of ice and things That's like right. that, but not a lot of precipitation here, right? That That's that right. lake effect was very localized uh, to around the Great Lakes, specifically in that kind of western New York, southern Canada area, correct? That's correct, absolutely. So in our case, you know, the the front itself, that that front that was attached to the bomb cyclone, came through relatively quickly. So we saw some precipitation, but it was largely in the form of rain, right. um, with a little bit of snow at the end, and that was it, uh, really, for us. Uh, you know, some strong winds, but nothing like what they saw closer to the center of the storm, uh, which was where Buffalo happened to be situated. So what was the cost? Uh, you know, what was sort of the morbidity and mortality, or, or how can we get a, get uh, our minds around what was the cost of this storm to Buffalo and the surrounding yes, areas? Well, a- absolutely. So this was a storm, you know, the, the death toll really I don't think has been finalized, you know, even at this point. Um, you know, we're, we're still getting a handle on that it is at least uh, over 50 um, across Erie County, uh, which is the county that comprises uh, uh, Buffalo, uh, likely close to 40 in the city of Buffalo itself. Um, but that number could still yet rise because they're still trying to identify people, you know, who were found trapped, you know, in a, in a variety of different settings in their cars, you know, trying to get to their cars, trying to get from home to, you know, out to run essential errands uh, and like just it's just a huge human tragedy and one that the city will be grappling with for some time. Um, and this comes, you know, on, on the heels of, you know, the the, the race hate fueled uh, murders that took place at the Topps grocery store, of course, in some of the same areas of the city that were most heavily right. impacted by this storm. Mm-hmm. 
So this is trauma piled on top of trauma for these communities. Well, and, and um, I don't know how much data we have already, but, um, you know, you mentioned that some of the people that lost their lives uh, were either trapped in their cars or kind of got outside and trapped in the storm and couldn't make their way back home. I think some people also who lost power may have also um, either carbon monoxide poisoning from, uh, you know, trying to keep warm and, and other ways. And, you know, it was young people. It was old people who had medical comorbidities. It seemed like really all across the board. But you're getting at, and I don't know, you can share with us the data, that there was a disproportionate toll of this uh, storm morbidity and mortality in uh, in certain neighborhoods. Can can you speak on that? Do we know enough to say clearly what neighborhoods those were, what, what describes those neighborhoods? That's right. Um, you know, we are largely talking about the eastern and particularly the northeastern quadrants of, uh, of Buffalo. Um, these are areas um, that are, you know, have a much higher level of poverty. Um, they have a higher concentration of uh, black Americans in many of those neighborhoods uh, as well. And these are areas of the city that have you know, really, really decades of, of relative uh, a lack of investment uh, and, and, and maintenance, really, in many of these areas. You know, one of the most tragic elements of, of the Tops shooting was that, you know, this top supermarket had just come into town, you know, fairly recently up to that point. Um, and it was the very first supermarket to be serving, you know, any uh, a wide swath of territory. These, this is a community that on top of everything else was facing, you know, a food desert. Um, so, you know, and these are, are the areas of the city that tend to be and and we have we don't have the definitive data yet, but we have strong anecdotal evidence certainly suggesting that these were some of the areas that were touched by plows last. Um, you know, many of the, the middle class communities um, saw their streets cleared, you know, fairly quickly, you know, as quickly as, as could be done. And again, these these extreme conditions. Um, but many uh, of the areas along the eastern side of the city, the northeastern side of the cities were the last to see the plows. So this is where most likely you saw, you know, proportionally more of um, people, you know, being trapped uh, and and indeed not being found for for days on on end. Um which, you know, is it just compounds the tragedy right. uh, even further in most cases. And, you know, as you said, you know, the, the circumstances are, are, are varied. You know, there were people who died, you know, trying to walk to get essential items, trying to get to their cars. There were also people who died of, you know, what we might consider to be unrelated medical events, but died simply because emergency vehicles could not get to them. So I was particularly touched by several stories, at least one individual who died of an asthma attack under normal circumstances would probably not have died as a result. But, you know, this too even has touched on the health inequities that we see there, because in these same communities, particularly among children, the rates of asthma are are much, much higher than the rest of the city and indeed the rest of Erie County. So, you know, even an event that looks like, oh, it may be unrelated, as it were, to the storm itself and to the larger health inequities involved actually touches on those health inequities uh, very much so. 
And you talked about uh, the kind of uh, difference in resources in, in different areas. Um, and that kind of reminds me, of course, uh, of uh, New Orleans and Katrina, right, mm-hmm. where there were certain neighborhoods that were low-lying, that didn't yes. have good upkeep of of the kind of water removal system, and also the reckless uh, dredging for industrial purposes that put neighboring low-lying areas at risk. Are, are there right. similar kind of um, long-term structural uh Disinvestments in Buffalo, or are we just talking about the deployment of resources on that day, uh, or a longer term uh, pattern that put these? I, I, I think risk? it's a bit of both, actually. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a bit of both. Um, you know, it, it, it remains the case, you know, looking worldwide. You know, the one of the greatest tragedies uh, connected to climate change is that those who are already most vulnerable. Uh, face the heaviest, you know, impacts, uh, you know, as a rule, as a, as a result of climate change in, in most cases. Um, and so, you know, in, in this case, you know, yes, the, the east side of Buffalo, the northeast side particularly, um, you know, this has been, uh, a- part of the city that has not seen the level of investment that we've seen in other parts of the city. But, you know, if you look at Buffalo as a whole as well, because of deindustrialization, uh, because of its location, you know, in, in what we, we, we often refer to as Rust Belt, right? The city itself has seen uh, disinvestment overall. But within that, the eastern side, the northeastern side has relatively seen even greater uh, disinvestment, you know, uh, over the years. So that feeds it. And, you know, you that plugs into really, you know, the the lack of maintenance of, for instance, public housing facilities, which unfortunately here in New York City, we're, we're all too familiar with as well. Um, but, you know, many, a very poor upkeep of public housing facilities, which leads in some of these cases to, you know, uh, carbon monoxide poisoning, potentially to, to cases of asthma, where there is exposure to uh, particular exposure to pollutants. Uh, in some cases, you know, one can imagine to, to lead paint as well. Um, and so, you know, it's it's a mix of the two, I would say. You know, I, I think this is the result of years of disinvestment. But, you know, authorities, city authorities, I think, you know, over the years, and this doesn't just hold true for Buffalo, but across the country, around the world, really. Unfortunately, it's the nature of politics that, you know, very often there is a sense of just resignation that sets in after a while. Um, that, you know, poverty seems too intractable in areas like this. So, you know, politicians, I, I think after a while, grow weary of it and, and, and they don't, you know, take that first move to begin really heavily investing in these areas that need it most. So unfortunately, it, it becomes something of a vicious cycle, I think, over the course of years and decades. So, um, I guess kind of two ways I want to go with this, but you kind of mentioned how the government response was um, in inequitable. What was the response, and and where and how did it fall short? Was this yes, just so, too big a storm, or was there uh, correctable, you know, preventable deaths that if if the resources had been deployed correctly? Right. I guess I feel like I've heard a lot of. Uh, well, anyway, I've read articles and I've heard some news reports that. Um, uh, that kind of call the mayor to the table and say, you know, was there enough advance notice? Yeah. And then, you know, Dr. Alki also brings up the point that this is kind of unprecedented and like what if there's anything that could have been done differently? I mean, yes, preparing more ahead of time is a very clear, you know, objective thing. Um, but does do we even have what we need to kind of prepare for such a storm, such a, a weather event? Yes, that's that's an excellent question. I think, you know, to to some extent, um, you know, the answer, unfortunately, um, 
is, is probably no, um, because, you know, this is, you know, really they're calling it a once in a generation storm. Some are right. going back and now calling it maybe a once in a lifetime storm. Right. So, you know, if, if you think of it in terms of, of preparation for a once in a lifetime event, it's very hard to retain a level of preparedness for what may well be a, a, a once in a, in a lifetime event. So to some extent, you know, I think that even if all the best preparations had been in place, you know, even if let's say the travel ban had gone into effect earlier. So one of the, you know, the, the decisions that's been criticized most is the timing of the travel ban. Mm-hmm. The travel ban went into effect, I believe, on Friday morning uh, of the storm, but it went into effect at 930 in the morning at a time when many people were either already on their way to work or were at work um, and were unable, therefore, to turn around uh, and leave before the snow actually began uh, and before it got really heavy. Um so, you know, could that travel ban have been issued earlier? Absolutely. I think that's a decision where, you know, many people involved in, in making that decision will go back and, and perhaps, you know, reconsider. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, I think even if every preparation had been in place, you know, would every individual affected had, you know, gotten the message, you know, in, in our era of fragmented media, would that have gone out effectively? Would everyone have heard it necessarily? Perhaps not. So I think, you know, even with the best preparations in place, it's entirely possible that this still could have been a deadly storm. Would it have been quite as deadly? You know, again, if certain decisions had been made in terms of both, you know, and the travel ban, you know, uh, in place earlier and then prioritizing these more vulnerable areas, um, I think we could have certainly kept the loss of life lower. But it is entirely possible we couldn't have eliminated it altogether. So, you know, it's it's about really managing the, the severity of the impacts, not about eliminating uh, the severity of those impacts, I think, at the end of the day. So it's, it, it's really a mix there. And uh, you talked a little bit about the human tragedy. <clears throat> Excuse me. And one of those tragedies that really resonated with me um, is the story of a young woman, uh, Andell Taylor, um, who, as I understand it, was a nursing assistant in a healthcare facility as well as a nursing student and left work on her way home and just didn't make it. Um, and, you know, was able to have, I think, cell service, was able to, to do Facebook lives and things, but just unable to move her vehicle close to home, but not safe enough to walk. And we don't know all the details, but it sounds like probably the snow blocked off the exhaust and she probably yes. died of carbon monoxide poisoning. That just felt like, um, you know, if that was someone that I worked with, that would just be so devastating. I feel like we really failed her. Um, and that seems like a preventable death. Um, and that's one that I think for that reason really resonates with me. And I know the family has been uh, a bit out in front of the media. They have a GoFundMe for her, you know, to bury her. Mm-hmm. And as well, have been talking to some of the news. And I think they're very upset about that. And like you talked about the trauma uh, as I understand it, her family members were the ones that had to recover her body because the government was just unable or unwilling to do what was necessary uh, to respond to that situation, even after she already succumbed. That's right. And, and stories like that, you know, are, are, are coming to light, you know, each day that passes, you know, as, as we move, uh, from, from this, uh, from this event. And, and I only hope that, you know, anyone in a position of power and really, you know, community members themselves, you know, take away the right lessons. You know, one of the things, the, the, the more heartwarming or encouraging aspects of this was as, as we were discussing uh, a bit earlier, you know, there, there was a, a certain mutual 
pull aid effort that really kicked in when it was clear that, you know, uh, tr- traditional government authorities were not going to be able to uh, or were not in a position to, to come to the aid of, of everyone. So, you know, I think if, if there's something to be learned from this, it's the importance of, you know, making sure that, you know, these community efforts really to band together um, to be able to locate people, you know, in a, in a disaster, you know, like this, um, are where possible really harnessed and, and if possible formalized to some extent, because there, there are going to be many cases as climate change continues to worsen, you know, as potentially we see more extreme events, you know, either like this or, or certainly of other varieties, floods, you know, come to mind, hurricanes, stronger hurricanes and the like, um, you know, we're not always going to be able to rely on on um, government authorities, you know, to come to the aid of, of people quickly. Um, and so, you know, in, in we have the tools at our disposal. You mentioned, you know, the, the role of social media, the social media can play. Uh, that can be mobilized. Um, you know, in order, in order to help save lives. So it's really about ensuring that that we work to, where possible, harness and formalize these efforts that are already in play, you know, across the affected communities um, during disaster uh, events like this. I think that I, I read uh, that some citizens of Buffalo actually started like a Facebook group, basically. Yes putting out the names and or I guess how to identify some of their relatives that you know they they lost in the storm and That's just right. to know if anybody had seen this person um yeah social media definitely can be mobilized to kind of assist in these situations but still it seems could be a little bit retroactive you know I, I feel like as though we have to really take the time to invest and be thoughtful about how, you know, this happened with COVID. It happened with Katrina. Mm. We always see communities of color, uh, you know, getting the short end of the, the shortest end of the stick in these mm. situations. And how can we be proactive about making sure that the infrastructure exists, that we give these people a fair chance, you know, in these bad situations? And 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 things are happening now that we have just not seen before in our lifetime, as we pointed out with with this storm, as we you know know very well to be so with COVID. Um, and, and if I can add to that, I think there's kind of two parts to that. One is the government or other institutional response, maybe not necessarily local government, if other institutions can support, you know, healthcare institutions and things like this. And the other is on this mutual aid um, uh, kind of effort that you mentioned. Everything that I've heard sounds like it was ad hoc, though. Was yeah. there any uh, mutual aid organizations or infrastructure that um, was deployed uh, in Buffalo that you're aware of? Uh, not, not that I'm fully aware of. I, I don't want to speak too glibly on, on this point, but, you know, it, it, it takes a little time to, you know, set up, um, you know, even this basic kind of social media infrastructure. And my guess would be that given that they are at least somewhat accustomed to dealing with severe winter weather events, again, maybe not of this magnitude, that there could have been, you know, at least an awareness that, okay, we need to spring into action. We need to, you know, follow these steps. So even if, you know, a given community had not yet been established, you know, there may have been people who were very well poised to do so. 
Um, and, and so that's, you know, the situation could well have been worse, of course, you know, if those efforts had not been in place and, and if there had not been an awareness that, oh, you know, um, you know, this could really get bad very quickly. You know, the, the one thing, you know, that can be said, you know, about, uh, you know, Buffalo in this case is that they're, they're accustomed to, to huge snow events, really mm-hmm. having just come through one not long ago, you know, again, that 80 inch, uh, total from, uh, just, I, I think about a month ago. Um, so I have to believe that, that there are some mechanisms that, you know, either are in place or, or that people can, can, and bring into action fairly quickly, but they're used to that to some extent. You know, it, it becomes even more severe in areas that are not accustomed to certain weather events that are now getting them. You know, like increased floods uh, and like uh, much heavier rain and the like. Um, so, so those are, are are also very severe situations elsewhere. All right, and of course, you're listening to Trauma Code on WBAI. Um, Dr. Simon Fitzgerald in studio with Dr. Cassandra Raphael. And we have on the air our guest, uh, Dr. Dr. Daniel Elke. Uh, sort of our local expert at the School of Public Health on uh, weather and weather-related events. Why don't we take a, a musical break and then we'll uh, continue this conversation right after.
welcome back to Trauma Code. That was Emeline Michel Messi La Vie, which is Haitian Creole for Thank You Life. And we dedicate that to the many people that we've lost very recently in the tragic Buffalo storm. Um, just a reminder that, you know, life is short and you don't know all the time when is the last time you'll see your loved ones. So we make every every breath count, right? Yes, indeed. Uh, uh, Dr. Alki, you still with us? Yes. So I, I want to ask, um, you know, where do we go from here? What's going to be the fallout in Buffalo? Um, but before we do that, anything else about the event that's important to talk about that we haven't yet? Well, you know, I, I think in making it clear that, you know, though we're considering this to be a once in a generation, perhaps once in a lifetime event that, you know, because of these disruptions of the polar vortex, you know, we are uh, likely to see extreme events, perhaps not quite of this magnitude, um, you know, both in Buffalo and in other parts of the country and world. And I, I think we all need to be to some extent, you know, prepared for that. Right. Um, it's a little waters. too early. Yeah. It's a little too early to tell, you know, whether a single event is due to climate change. That takes quite a while to, you know, work on attribution studies, but most likely it is. Uh, and of course, that is something that is not going away. And, you know, um, you talked about the disruption of the polar vortex. And one of my climate anxieties that I haven't spoken about much and haven't seen well studied um, is what will change in our climate when there's an ice-free Arctic? Um, yeah. in the summer. Uh, it, you know, if you have a glass of water and there's a lot of ice in it or a little ice in it, the temperature is still pretty close to freezing. Once you have no ice in it, everything changes dramatically. That's, I don't know if you have, a, this is a little off topic, but since we have you in, in the in, on the air, sure. uh, any thoughts on what that will mean for our, our climate and, oh, well, and could, when that might occur? Yeah, certainly. You know, it uh, it's likely to have a, a compounding effect. Because as you see, you know, as the water melts, you know, you're uh, talking about uh, even more rapid warming of waters taking place. And, you know, we're still becoming aware of all of the impacts that, that that can have. So even, you know, at the incremental rate that we're seeing, we see extreme disruptions like this. Um, you can imagine, you know, if it uh, we see uh, a rapid melt. Um, you know, perhaps a, a more or less ice-free, you know, Arctic during the uh, during the summer months, uh, particularly uh, just the the compounding of that effect that it could have. You know, and and we also have to worry, of course, as all of this melting is occurring. Um, you know, we have to also worry about the continued rise in sea level um, as well. You know, we have to think about buttressing low-lying areas. You know, of New York City. You know, sure. across geographic Long Island, Brooklyn. Uh, you know, what parts of Manhattan? happen, you know, after a certain point are going to be more and more difficult to shore up, um, you know, against the sea level rise that that is, is simply relentless at this point. And this is a little bit inside baseball, maybe. But do you have a sense of when, how soon there might be an essentially ice free Arctic summer? Uh, well, we get closer and closer. Um, I, I think it will be a number of years, you know, maybe maybe uh, a few decades uh, even. But, you know, the, the, the trajectory we're on is not a good one. You know, right now we're at a point where basically, you know, for, for centuries it was a, a dream, uh, you know, for explorers to find a Northwest Passage, right? Well, watch what you wish for. We now have effectively Northwest Passages because of the gaps that have developed in that ice um, over time. So we have, you know, that that ice has been eroded substantially, but 
there are still, you know, large swaths of it. So I think it's going to be a fair amount of time. This is not something that's going to happen overnight, certainly. Um, could it happen within our lifetimes? Possibly. Um, but this would be, you know, this would be decades into the future. I mean, you know, however, we don't have to wait for, you know, that melting Worst case uh, scenario. to complete this process for right. there, yeah, for there to get, uh, for there to be negative impacts uh, arising from the continued melt. So um, bringing it back closer to home, what what is going to be the fallout in Buffalo, um, you know, politically, socially and anything yeah. else after this storm and in uh, New York State on a larger level? Yeah, yeah that's a very good question, too. I, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, one, one of the things we alluded to was the, the pressure that the mayor uh, has been under. Um, you know, part of this has to do with the, with the politics of the situation in Buffalo, where uh, Byron Brown, uh, the current incumbent mayor, um, won a very contentious election back in 2021, um, you know, in which uh, he was actually defeated uh, by India Walton, uh, who was right. the uh, Democratic nominee in the end uh, and was supported by, you know, more progressive uh, forces overall. Byron Brown, you know, came back to power largely as a result of a write-in vote uh, that was in many ways supported by, you know, not only more centrist Democrats, but also um, probably uh, large numbers of, uh, of would-be uh, Republicans as well. Um, so, you know, that has put the mayor, you know, already he was in a weakened position, uh, in effect. Um, and this response, you know, further throws into, you know, question, uh, you know, really the the, the the competence to some degree uh, of the administration uh, and and further weakens him, you know, I think think politically. So, you know, could this strengthen, um, you know, either Walton herself or, or someone else, you know, who wants to run, you know, particularly from the left uh, next time around? Absolutely. Uh, and it's why the mayor particularly has been on the de- on the defense, um, you know, over this event, uh, even more so than than perhaps he would otherwise be. Um, so I think locally, you know, politically, this this could have real impacts that reverberate uh, over the next uh, months, indeed, the next several years until the next mayoral uh, election, potentially. And uh, uh, Governor Hochul is also from yeah. that area, correct? Right. And she's been a little she bit on the hot seat for um, uh, kind of dedicating a lot of money to build a stadium for the Buffalo Bills. And I don't know if this will bring into question her, her priorities moving forward. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, I, I think politicians of both parties, you know, like to focus on on what's going to to get the to be the biggest spectacle, you know, in terms of investment, you know, whether it be stadiums or these huge infrastructure projects. Well, you know, basic maintenance of, for instance, public housing uh, and the like, um, you know, even, you know, keeping the, the proper number of snowplows outfitted with the latest technology. That's not nearly as sexy, but that's really where the money, the investment needs to go if we're to avoid, um, you know, a, a repeat of, of something along these lines. Unfortunately, the short time horizons of most politicians mean that they're going to focus on the spectacle. They're going to focus on, you know, again, uh, what is most visible and not necessarily the basic maintenance uh, that needs to be done uh, in order to uh, to really save lives in events like this. And for our New York City listeners, you know, I don't know if you're in a position to say, but um you know, what should we be looking for or demanding or what should our priorities be um, to learn from what happened in Buffalo and, and prevent, uh, you know, 
I, I, one of our previous guests on my actually on my previous show was um, some people who were in Lebanon during the port explosion, yeah. and the point was, you know, the failure of mass casualty is a failure of imagination. So, what can we learn from this in Buffalo um, and to set uh, a course for us in New York City uh, to keep us from from being in a similar situation, whatever the next you know mass casualty event is. Absolutely. I think there are a couple lessons that arise from that. First of all, the importance of clear communication of threats um, and really an early response um, to what might appear to be a, a serious, you know, natural, uh, potentially impending natural disaster, you know, along these lines. Um, so, you know, the importance of communication, I think, is, is, is crucial, making sure the message, you know, gets out there and gets out there promptly and gets to everyone. We need to, you know, really make sure that, you know, we don't have problems arise from language barriers, for instance, that everyone gets this important information in a timely manner. That doesn't always occur, and it's certainly not automatic. So making sure that, you know, the investment, you know, really some of that investment goes into uh, propagating uh, the, the seriousness of threats to everyone, and particularly to those who may be most vulnerable. And, you know, again, the second lesson has to do with what, what we just uh, talked about a bit ago, and that is the importance of just basic maintenance, you know, maintaining our basic infrastructure, you know, in terms of housing, you know, in terms of, of roads and in, in terms of, um, you know, the, the, the ports, etc. Um, and even if that is less, again, less sexy than, you know, building a new stadium or, for instance, uh, you know, uh, uh, extending a subway line, right? Um, you know, I, I think really seeing to that, that maintenance, um, is, is absolutely central. And unfortunately, you know, we've seen with these, um, uh, issues that that we're we're all too aware of when it comes to NYCHA uh, and the backlog, uh, the maintenance backlog, uh, and the like the loss of heat in many cases, uh, or the loss of air conditioning during the summer. Right? Um, you know that that this is something that, that the city really needs to continue to work on, um, and we have ways to go, I think. But it's absolutely essential if we're to face these climate-related uh, threats um, into the future. Uh, and as we move towards the end of the hour, is there anything else that you wanted to to bring up that we haven't touched on yet? Uh, I, I think we uh, we had a pretty uh, comprehensive uh, discussion. Excellent. I think that you know this this really reminded me in some ways. Uh, this event reminded me a bit of what we saw here in New York City when it comes to the remnants of uh, Ida uh, not long ago. Um, and, you know, there, too, again, it was very often the, the most vulnerable who um, were were most heavily impacted, uh, of course, uh, by uh, the flooding, uh, the, the quick flooding that resulted there, you know, too. There was, you know, not everyone was getting the right message, right? Not ever the the, uh, you know, really the life threatening nature of the event. I think was not communicated effectively to everyone and to those who most needed to hear it, you know, to get themselves out of harm's way. So, you know, the, the threat in Buffalo may be snow, uh, but we too here in New York City, uh, you know, face face real threats that arise, you know, at least partly as a result of our changing climate. And it's absolutely essential that we address uh, those issues now before it's too late. Definitely. My appreciation and my assessment of flash flooding risks in New York City changed a lot after that event uh, right. in, in my commute and, you know, in buildings that, I, that I'll come in and out of and things like that, being very aware of what the risk is. Absolutely. 
Um, and, uh, you know, I didn't give you advance notice, but whenever I have a guest on, I do like to ask if you have any cultural recommendation you want to share with our audience, uh, maybe a book you're reading, music, album, uh, performance, uh, visual art, anything that, that uh, you're excited about that our audience may not be aware of. Sure. I, I think that, you know, it, it may be a, a tad niche, um, but, uh, you know, one one book that I, I, I come back to uh, again and again and I think about um, is uh, a, a recent uh, book by uh, Andrew Bloom, B-L-U-M, uh, called The Weather Machine. Um, and this book uh, really talks, uh, you know, in, in very kind of layman's terms, I think it's really well written um, in, you know, it really breaks down, you know, how weather forecasting has improved, how far we have to go before, um, you know, really we're able to effectively harness the technology technology that's there to get the message out to everyone, um, how we've attempted to do so and what threats we face. You know, one of the threats we face, you know, for instance, uh, according to this book is that, you know, it used to be the weather information was pretty much uh, uh, considered to be kind of a public good. Well, today, you know, it, a lot of that information is kind of being taken over uh, by the for-profit sector. Um, and so what implications does that have? for getting the message out, particularly to those who may be most vulnerable for weather events. It, it's really a book that that made me think um, and that I keep kind of coming back to, particularly with what we've seen, um, you know, uh, in, in Buffalo and, and indeed with uh, Ida here in New York City. So that you said was The Weather Machine, uh, A Journey mm-hmm. Inside the Forecast by Andrew Blum. Is that right? That's correct. Absolutely. Okay. Yep. Well, Dr. Uh, Daniel Elke, uh, thank you for visiting us here on Trauma Code. Uh, this has been uh, Dr. Simon Fitzgerald with uh, Dr. Cassandra Raphael. Uh, and, yeah, thanks again, and I look forward to seeing you uh, in Flatbush. Thank you again, Absolutely. Dr. Elke. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. So we're going to have a, a musical interlude, and then we'll wrap up the show afterwards.
Welcome back to Trauma Code. This is Simon Fitzgerald in studio with Dr. Cassandra Raphael. And we just heard the Pointer Sisters. I'm so excited by the album of the same name. So excited. 1982 record by the Pointer Sisters. So excited. One of their great, great hits. And uh, we recently lost uh, the one Pointer Sister, Anita Pointer. Um, and so we, we wanted to, to play one of their great hits to call attention to that departure and also to I guess I, I'm, I'm hopeful for the new year right I hope that other people are feeling somewhat excited about it you might not be you know but <laughs> but I'm, I'm uh, I wanted to recognize Miss Anita Pointer mostly and you know I feel like um, my awareness of uh, cultural important people who pass away is very much influenced by uh, Questlove's uh, Instagram feed right rest um, in melody rest in melody says. yeah he, he brought uh, uh, Anita Pointer's death to my attention and Questlove from the roots of course always often has a lot of uh, very touching experiences to share uh, and the other uh, one a day later, the same day that he also shared, uh, was uh, the death of Gangsta Boo from the Three Six Mafia. Um, I looked for a radio edit song to put on this uh, at the last minute, uh, and the one I came up with, it just didn't feel right. But obviously someone who's very talented, she's probably about my age, so gone too soon for sure. Uh, and like like we said before, we never know uh, what growth we'll miss out on when someone dies too young. Right, right. Um Wow. So, I, you know, putting it all together, it seems that there's been a lot of loss discussed in today's episode. So maybe this is a little bit a little bit cathartic for us, a little bit of our, our grief processing in this show today. Um, recognizing, of course, the folks who were lost in the storm in western New York last week. Also, Miss Anita Pointer. Also, Gangsta Boo from 3-6 Mafia. And, and one of the last, I guess, or the last loss that I'll talk about today is that of Pele. The, uh, the legend, the legendary football player from Brazil, um, who passed away at the age of 82 last week. Um, you know, I always admire people who use their their talent or their skills or their gifts to unite people whose paths wouldn't otherwise cross. And and we can see that. You know, I, I kind of want to say soccer is the world's sport. I don't know if that's overstating the thing no. uh, but it, it's not right it right no. so I mean we're on the heels of the World Cup right so so we know how many people all over the world are so invested in 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 football or soccer um, and so Pele was just a, a major loss to the sport you know, originating the samba style that I love so much I mean you know in in later players still not active today but you know Ronaldinho Ronaldo um, oh there's one whose name I can't remember right now I think it begins with an N Somebody will not forgive me for this. Neymar. Neymar, thank you so much. Yes. So definitely a, a, a legend across the world um, and also instrumental to American soccer. Uh, it, it's its growth uh, during my lifetime. <clears throat> um, but we're running towards the end of the show. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on Trauma Code. Uh, you can find all of these episodes as a podcast called Trauma Code, wherever you get yours, or on the archives online uh, at uh, WBAI.org. Don't forget... Uh, to uh, donate uh, to support our station, you can call in at 212 209, I'm sorry, 212-209-2950 or give to WBAI.org or just find us on the WBAI.org website.
So this last song that we'll play today will be by Barbatukes. It's called Bayo Destemperado. Um, Portuguese listeners will cringe at my pronunciation, but I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> uh, I'll do better next time. But uh, style of music called Foro originated in the northeast of Brazil. This is an instrumental track called Bayao Destemperado by Barbatukes. Please enjoy. Happy New Year. Again, 212-209-2950. And thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us at the Trauma Code. Thank <laughs> you.